0: What's up, Donks? It is uh, October 28th, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Promotional More Practice Live Chat here on MMAFighting.com. Ooh, you know what? I'm a little low. You'd think I'd do that ahead of time, but I don't. One more time. Let's see if I can do this. That's marginally better. Uh, okay, today on the chat, we will talk about um, Nick Diaz's situation with the Nevada Athletic Commission. Just as I talk to you now... A few minutes ago, Brett Akamoto got a statement from them confirming there were settlements. So we'll talk about that. Uh, I broke news yesterday that Glory will no longer be aired on Spike TV. That to me is actually a pretty interesting one um, to the extent we have any questions about it, and I think we do. We'll talk, to, we'll talk about that as well. Uh, Ronda Rousey held her media scrum yesterday. World Series of Fighting has been sued. There's lots of things going on in the sport. So, of course, we'll talk about all that. And then whatever other questions that you might have. Best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com. You can also tweet me at SBN Luke Thomas. I should have wrote that here, right? A um, couple of podcasting notes. There might still be, if you can see my, when I move my hands, there might still be some interlacing issues. We're aware of them. We're working to resolve them. So I appreciate your patience with that. But um, we're coming along. We're coming along. And I got some other things in the works, too. But, you know, <coughs> steady as she goes. All right, Uh, let's see. Oh, and if you could uh, do me a favor, if you could give this a thumbs up, that'd be very nice of you. And if you could now, whenever you see this face, be it live or after the fact, um, I know it's a terrible thing to look at, but if you could share this video, uh, the YouTube link or the MMA fighting link, either of those would be preferred. Just let folks know you're watching. Get out there on social media, whatever form you want to, Use and say, I'm watching this chat. You should watch it too. Um, okay. And I forgot to put the Monday Morning Analyst up on iTunes. I, f- I apologize for that. That'll go up right after the show. And then n- not far after that, I'll put up the other one. Um, okay. Last thing uh, I actually don't have any caffeinated beverages today because I'm trying to cut down on my caffeine because, not that you care, because um, I'm trying to use like um, this product C4 before workouts and it's got caffeine in it, and I can't justify that much caffeine during the day, so I've got this. Don't worry, it's got artificial sweetener in it, because what would it be without artificial sweeteners? It's okay. It's not. I mean, it's fine. This one is a uh, kiwi strawberry. I don't know. Just sort of tastes like something that maybe, you know, from a powder and water that you could make in your house, but it is what it is. All right. First question. Um, Paige versus Rose. Paige Van Zandt versus Rose Namajunas. <clears throat> what do you think of this new matchup, or do you prefer uh, Paige Van Zant with JoJo? In your opinion, how will a victory or loss affect each fighter's career in the short to medium term? Yeah, well, this is this is interesting. Like you notice that like, we haven't reported it yet. I can't take credit for doing the work on this, but folks on the staff did. Um, and suffice to say, there isn't enough information to say it's confirmed. Not saying it won't be true, or that it's not trending in that direction. It's not true as I speak to you right this moment live. Um, that's that I know for sure. But I guess if you're asking about the matchup generally, yeah, it's a tough matchup. It's actually an even tougher matchup than I thought. With Joy and Calderwood, um, I thought Van Zant's pressure game would really give Calderwood some problems. She kind of, I feel like, can not, not not break under them, but just not be able to get her offense out in a really timely, effective way under that kind of pressure. Even if that pressure is a little bit wild and loose and and not quite accurate. Um, Against Nama Yunus, the pressure game can work, but she's got a little bit more return game under pressure. Um, she is able a little bit more to get her game going, and Carla Esparza put pressure on Nama Yunus too, but Van Zant lacks a little bit of that refinement, frankly a little bit of that athleticism too, at least in the wrestling department anyway. Um, so to me, it's a really tougher fight. It's a much tougher fight. So I don't know who I like in that one, you know. Um, Nama Yunus taking a short, short-ish notice. That kind of hurts. Uh, but Van Zant's still lacking a lot of the refinement she needs in both tactics and strategy. There's a difference between the two, you know, and and still rounding out her abilities. So I don't know. It's a it's a much tougher fight. It's a much tougher fight. Um, I just feel like Nama Yunus is, is a little bit better under fire. And for someone like... Like, the way in which Van Zant works is she likes control positions, but she'll do a lot of trading of them. She'll kind of give up a spot to get another one to keep the attack sort of rolling a little bit. Against Nama Yunus, that's a bit deadly. She doesn't hand those spots over once she gets them too easily, even when someone underneath is struggling to get free. You saw, for example, if you did watch the Monday morning, and one of the things that was really apparent with Luis Smolka is that if you get Mount or... Even on, even if you get a takedown or something, side control, he never, he never relents from that position ever. He never stops in side control. He never stops with back mount. He never stops with mount. He is constantly, constantly moving. Always, you have no ability to really get your offense going because you're just trying to maintain the position the entire time. Um, I'm not saying that. Paige Van Zandt is on that level in terms of the wide array of arsenal of attacks that Smolka has. But nevertheless, she's got a little bit of that spirit, the competitive spirit where give one to trade one, ultimately come out on top, you know, and then accumulatively add damage in the control positions as they last. So, um, and I don't know. I might like I might like Nama Yunus in that one. I thought I thought like that that Calderwood was just the right step up. Nama Yunus is a tough one, a very, very tough one. But I'll tell you what, man, if <laughs> If Paige Van Zandt can beat Nama Eunice, I mean, everyone has to be quiet after that point. I, I don't know how likely it is, but I'm saying if, if she does, that would silence a fair amount of critics, I feel like. I'm reading some of the responses here. Yeah, it's interesting. Opinion is kind of split. Some some folks think Paige Van Zant will win. Some don't. That's interesting. Huh. Well, surprised by that. All right. Two-part question. Chris Weidman versus Luke Rockhold. Question number one. Luke, do you think Chris Weidman's wrestling will be rendered ineffective against Luke Rockhold, considering that he trains with Cormier and Cain Velasquez on a daily basis. I never understand what those questions mean. I know what they're intended to mean, I think. Guys, you can't ask a question that way. You can't ask a question being like, X trains with Y. Doesn't that mean X has Y's ability? No. No. I mean, they could have better ability. They could have worse. They could have about the same. They could have about the same, but in different ways, in different circumstances. The question you want to ask about Luke Rockhold is not, is he getting adequate preparation for this fight? In that sense, yes, he is getting adequate preparation. The question is, does he have the requisite skill set to deal with it? Do you think you've seen enough in his takedown defense to make you think that Wyman can pressure him there? Here's my sense about that. My sense is that Wyman, I think, is going to get a couple of takedowns, you know. I think he'll eventually be able to get Rockhold to the floor. The question is, one, how much energy is he going to expend doing it? Two, what does it do to the rest of his offense? And three, once he gets him there, is he really able to hold him there? You know, I know that Rockhold is interested in having a grappling battle. Remember, he told uh, us at the media scrum at UFC, the one in Baltimore, the John Jones versus Teixeira fight, that he wanted a, a match with, at Metamoris with Keenan Cornelius. He wanted to test his jujitsu. Um, and you can say that's foolhardy or not, or whatever the case may be. But, you know, that's he, he, he prides himself, I think, as a bit of a ground expert. Prides himself everywhere. But there's see, there seems to be some kind of itch he wants to scratch there. Um, so I don't know to what extent he'll accommodate Weidman. But my guess is that, you know, Weidman's got a, Weidman has some interesting takedowns. So, for example, you go to that Vitor Belfort takedown. What is the first Vitor Belfort takedown he gets? He reaches for a single. Right? This is very, very interesting. and I Actually, I tried it in practice after I saw it, and I, I had a lot of trouble doing it. We had some other guys a little bit smaller who could make it work. But you know, for a guy his size doing that, that's impressive. He grabs a single, and instead of – let's say he grabs let, – let's say you're Chris Weidman, or like, I'm Chris Weidman, like, like talking to you now. I'm going to reach for this side of your body for this leg. If I do that, I'm going to run the pipe on the same side, rotating out. Right? I'm going to rotate out this way. I'm going to grab and turn, okay? He had one where he reached for a single, and he didn't dump. Because you see that option too, right? So Roy Nelson was trying that in his last fight. He would grab hold, try and run the pipe against Josh Barnett. When it didn't work, he would then lift and dump. It's not what he does either. He takes the single, and instead of running the pipe this way, he slings his body the other way and then takes you down. It's like a reverse single leg. Go back and watch the... um, the Vitor Belfort fight. He's got a wider. It, Chris Weidman has, in my opinion, I mean, maybe Daniel Cormier is up there too. I, I don't know exactly. But in terms of like using these takedowns, Chris Weidman might have the best arsenal of lower body, non cage wrestling takedowns in MMA, uh, UFC, whatever. He doesn't use the cage very often. Sometimes he uses it, but not very often. He's got a lot of takedowns that happen in the middle of the cage, which tells you he's got a much more effective takedowns. And he's got. Most of his come from below the waist, although he's got some ones uh, above the waist as well. He's got some throws, and so I think he hit a throw on Jesse Bongfeld. In any event, I think one of those is probably going to catch Rockhold off guard. question is, can he hold Rockhold down? I don't know. Um, but, But to answer your question, does he have the takedown defense because Rockhold trains with two guys who have good wrestling is not how you frame a question because it doesn't tell you anything. Anybody can train with anybody else. It doesn't mean you absorb their powers. It can help you train better. I said this on the Monday Morning Analyst, man. I'm going to say it again until you guys listen to me. Because I mentioned before, the, the opening statement on the Monday Morning Analyst was about Kahal Pendred and CM Punk. And I won't get too much into it, but suffice to say that people who looked at Tom Breeze starching Cajal Pendred and thinking, well, CM Punk might be able to do the same, is the most ludicrous thing I think I've ever heard in my life. It's totally insane. And it means you are totally... Uh, clueless about what MMA looks like you need to go and you need to watch how hard it is to get good at MMA you need to go and watch people who've been training for a few years still fighting in the amateurs because what you're looking at in UFC especially with someone like Weidman and Rockhold is as close to mistake free MMA as you get it's not mistake free there's no such thing as mistake free but that's basically as close as you're going to get to mistake free MMA okay certainly in the middleweight division anyway. Right? But it's hard to get that good, and not just in some general sense. You can go and see how hard it is to get that good. You can see guys who've been training five, six years, jiu-jitsu brown belts, guys who've had a number of pro kickboxing fights get and, and, and can wrestle MMA just fine. And you can get in there, and you can see it's hard to put it all together. Super, super hard. These are guys who might have a wrestling background. These are guys that might have some kind of Taekwondo background. You see it all the time, man, all the time. And so for me, when you ask something like, well, who do they train with? I don't know. Maybe that doesn't matter. Something that matters a little bit, of course, but in some ways it might matter a lot for just preparation's sake. But this isn't like you don't absorb their powers. Your average donk on Twitter can go and train at AKA. He ain't beating Luke Rockald or Chris Wybin anytime soon. They can train for a lifetime and not beat those guys. They have a lot of special ability, a special, special ability. Anyway, long story short, that's not the question you can answer. Second question. Rockhold consistently tends to keep his hands down and uh, out at chest level to gauge distance at his opponent and opts to rely heavily on his footwork to evade any offensive maneuvers. He's gotten really good at it. This has proven to be effective against mid-tier competitions such as Bisping and Philippou, but high-level fighters like Jacare and Machida were able to capitalize on Luke's opening by tagging him with combinations to the chin. Okay, the Jacare fight was a while ago. Will Chris Weidman's pressure boxing be a key factor in damaging Rocket on feet if he continues to keep his hands below his chin? This is going to be such a fun fight because that question I like a lot. The pressure boxing of Chris Weidman is excellent. Okay, uh, And I'm also kind of curious about what stance they come out in. Someone might change it up here a little bit and come out in the opposite stance. So you might get one of these. You might get two Southpaws fighting. You might get two Orthodox fighting. To me, that's kind of interesting is what stance they're going I'm, to... I'm expecting one of them to shake that up a little bit. More so, probably Rockhold. But that's something, I, if I were you, I'd be in the lookout for. Who is going to change up their stance? Because if you're Rockhold, you've got a premium on taking away any kind of lead foot penetration step that Rockhold's, or excuse me, that Weidman's going to take. So that means you might have to make some adjustments to how you strike, to what you throw, to what combinations you work on. I definitely would be thinking about that if I'm Chris Weidman and, and Luke Rockhold. So that's going to be interesting. But that's also the other point about it is Chris Weidman, you know, Chris Weidman is so good at, if someone said to you, okay, what do you need to do to be Leona Machida? A couple of things. But the key thing is you can't let him create space. you got to get him backing up. Chris Weidman will just march your ass backwards. He'll just just do what you... He's so coachable in that way. A very, very coachable fighter. I feel like Luke Rockhold is a very refined, enormously talented fighter. Is a little bit more willing to listen to instinct. And that can be good and that can be bad. um, But Weidman is very much like what goes in the ear, he retains. And he just does. He doesn't do a lot of improv necessarily unless he's in a really desperate situation. um, Or feels like something is desperately wrong. Most of the time, he's got a game plan. He sticks to it. He just does what he's told. Um, and he has the ability to do what he's told, right? Very easy. Oh, just go run through that A-gap um, all the way for a touchdown, 80 yards. Yeah, easier said than done. But um, you get the idea. But that, that's that is that to me, is a key question, is, is who is going to get pushed backwards? Um, you know, Luke, take uh, take takedown defense is excellent. Um, it's going to be a tough one, man. I have a hard time seeing how uh, one guy goes in there and blows out the other one. You know, I'll tell you what about this fight. Here's how much I love this fight. And then I'll move on because we've got a thousand questions. Um, this fight is different, but it feels to me like St. Pierre versus Trigg. Now, it's not the same because St. Pierre was on a rocket ship and Frigg, a Trigg was considered to be a, a you know, division stalwart. But there was a little bit of uncertainty of how that fight would go. I wanna see if I can find the odds for that fight. That would be fun. I'm trying to remember. Dang. They don't have it. Deweese, Takamoto, Vitali, Babcock, Koshek, Sarah. Dang. That's a bummer. Um, trig versus GSP odds. Because there was this moment where you were like, I don't know how this is going to go. You know, this is, uh, what's going to happen here? And then George C. Pierre went in there and blew the doors off of him. So that, to me, is kind of interesting. Here we go. Betting odds for UFC 54. I apologize for the delay here. So St. Pierre was a slight favorite at one, my, uh, minus one 175 to Trix, plus 155. It was very, very close. And if we look at uh, the UFC 194 odds to the extent that they're out, let's see. It's about the same. Chris Wyman is at minus 170, Luke Rockhold at plus 150. They are nearly identical. Wow, look at that. That's coincidental i'm telling you they feel very similar man they feel very similar where you thought jesus like this is a really tough fight because you thought trig was gonna be able to stop gsp's takedowns and you knew his kickboxing was good but you thought maybe that trig would get the better of the wrestling on, on certain parts to be able to back st pierre up there was some questions about you know the st pierre really crumble against the really better guys in that division because he sort of had his issues against Matt Hughes, you know the first time they fought um and then you know that wasn't the case at all that's funny man that's funny that the odds are like that um Sort of tells you, like that, that the the object that fight is someone's. I, I, my sense that that one's going to go the distance and it's going to be crazy the whole way through, but maybe it winds up being like St. Pierre versus Trigg, where you think it's going to go one way and one guy just shows up and just annihilates the other one. Um, that would be kind of interesting. All right, let's move on. All right, what's up with Glory? Sad to hear it won't be on Spike anymore. Any idea where it'll go? So I uh, updated my story last night when I got a, um, a comment from glory's president, John Franklin and uh, who I know. And of course you guys all know I did four events for them as a sideline reporter. The last one being glory 19. So that was in February of this year. Um, I don't, I don't think I have a relationship with them anymore. They haven't officially told me, but you know, writings on the wall, but, uh, I, first of all, let me just say I have no hard feelings. I am, uh, glad I was able to have the chance to go and watch a promotion, try and do something bigger than just make money and put on shows or trying to grow something. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, and listen, I always tell people this, I'm not on their payroll. I'm not collecting a check. I don't have any incentive. Um, not everything I did with them went awesome, but I would say that like if you never checked out one of their shows, and the next show is going to be in Milan, and I don't know what the issue with Chloe 26 is, or whatever the case may be, 25 is going to be in Milan. Their shows are incredible, man. They were super exciting. They were thrilling to watch. The production value was high. Um, they had a lot going for them. Now, that disclaimer out of the way, you know it's not all that surprising to me that that Spike dropped them. Um, it's not because they didn't have a quality product. Barbus is here. It's not because they didn't have a quality product. it's because everyone like I saw some people let me say a couple things. I saw on Twitter some folks who are, who are you know more kickboxing enthusiasts. They keep pointing to like this issue from negligence on Spike TV's part, which I find a very curious thing. Um, you know, Spike TV at the time, if you recall, was airing or trying to air a rejuvenated K1, which they quickly dropped when they realized there was just not much there to do and then wound up signing with uh, signing Glory to put on some shows. And um, look, that was back when Glory had a ton of money. Uh, it was a ton of investment money anyway. They had guys on their team who had used to work with UFC, um, who understood the pay-per-view space, guys who used to work with WWE. You know, these are they didn't have some idiots there. They had some guys who knew the combat sports slash sports entertainment space um, and had been in the game for a very long time. It's really not true that um, there weren't people in leadership. It's not true that there wasn't money or that there wasn't leadership involved in trying to get the products steered in the right way. It is true. If you recall, for example, Spike does the production of the PBC Boxing and, of course, Viacom owns Bellator. So they do all the production. I can tell you that uh, Glory does their own production and that Glory does have, in some cases, a different vision about what their production should look like versus what Spike wanted. There, I'm not saying there was some... Well, well look, there was there was some differences there. Ultimately, they came to some kind of consensus about what it should have been, but nevertheless, um, um, it is safe to say that they had some different creative visions there. Now, who was right? You know, I don't know, to be perfectly honest. Um, what I do know is that I'm not sure that the compromises each side was willing to make ultimately made the product better. Um, but that's debatable. You know, I, I don't know that to be true for sure. Um, the problem with the kickboxing in America is there are just so many unknowns. There's just so many unknowns. Was it Spike's fault for negligence? I don't think so. I mean, they had no incentive to put Glory on. They gave him a try. Um, they had some requests about what they wanted the product to look like on their channel. And ultimately, it just didn't work. Um, I don't view that as negligence. I, I, I really, I mean, they made a commitment to Glory in a way that at the time, no one, to my knowledge, was willing to make that kind of commitment. And to this day, I don't know that anyone's going to make that kind of commitment. It was kind of funny that, you know, um, Glory's CEO was like, well, we want to get on a sports network that's got dedicated, that, that you know, can do dedicated shoulder programming. I think Glory wants to be treated like a star brand, understandably. Uh, and they want to have shoulder programming dedicated to it. By the way, Spike had some shoulder programming, but it did terrible ratings from the start. You know, um, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say terrible, but not good ratings, not impressive ratings. It didn't build towards anything. It was like Ultimate Knockouts. They did never connected with anything. And um, um, I, you know, if I'm looking around the sports network landscape, you know, NBC doesn't care about MMA uh, World Series of Fighting at all. I mean, they're willing to put them on, but you can't find them on the NBC website. They don't promote them very much. You know, Fox Sports One. will they be interested in Glory? I don't know. Maybe with CBS Sports. That one seems to be like a maybe because they are just desperate for you know content, and they've aired on a time by the Glory Superfight series before. So I don't know. But like to me, the idea here's the problem fundamentally, which is what I, this is where I have an issue with kickboxing's most dedicated fans. You know, S- Spike. I'm not saying they did Glory a favor. They were looking for mutual benefit there, but Spike took a risk on on. On glory, just in the same way they took a risk on UFC, which is to say, not that much of a huge risk, right? They Spike or UFC paid for the first year to be on Spike, and if that hadn't worked out, they'd have been gone. But it did, and then they wanted to make it a bigger commitment. That is the way television works, man. Either you sink or you swim, and if you don't swim fast, bro, you are done. The idea that Spike was going to be in this to help build a sport in the name of kickboxing to me is ridiculous. It's not what television really does. It's not the television model, not Spike, not NBC, nobody, nobody. If they don't see the kind of returns they need to see, or at least some light at the end of the tunnel, like you know, some kind of growth that they can sort of write off immediately because it's on a path to something, maybe a la MLS games, um, as those continue to get bigger and bigger. Then, then you can make those kinds of investments, but this, this, that was not the case here, and they never signed to that kind of deal to begin with. They signed them to a deal to see what that product would get when it first went on TV, because Glory did have money, and they did have leadership, and they did have good production value. They had all, and they had good fighters. They had good fights. They had good events. It was ready. It was a ready for television product. and I know kickboxing fans might bristle at some of that idea, but for a television product, it was ready. It was ready. you know. Not to say it hasn't matured in some ways, changed, but, um, but the idea that like, Spike was in this to, like, we're going to grow this sport, and we're committed to eating bad ratings on Friday night for two years on end, like, that's, just, that's just fantasy. give you an example, you guys know I had a show, MMA Uncensored Live. I remember distinctly, um, I think either Ink Master came on the same year we were on or maybe the year after we were on. This was 2012. It ended in two, just before 2013 started. I can't remember the timeline exactly. I remember, I remember talking to a Sparky executive at some point, and I was like, how come we didn't get a finale like they got a finale? Because you look at, this, you get a look at the um, Igmaster finale. They got a live studio audience and a ballroom. And uh, <laughs> his answer was basically like, because you didn't get their ratings. Right? I mean, and it wasn't like a rude thing to say. It was just like, what you get in TV is what you put out. Now, it doesn't matter what the hardcore fans think about it, it doesn't matter what like even critics think about it, because Glory had good critical review as well. What matters is are you delivering right now? Or are you delivering in some kind of way where we can ride off right now on a path to something else? And I'm sorry, but if you look at the numbers, that's just not the case. Some of the better Glory events were doing 500,000. And it's not because Glory's not a quality product, it's a super high quality product. It's because for reasons that remain kind of unclear to many of us, it just doesn't connect. But let me just say one thing that I think really, I'm not trying to be disparaging. I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm just trying to talk about it honestly. Having seen kickboxing at amateur levels, many of my teammates compete. At pro levels, some of my teammates compete. And then the very highest level, the glory level, yeah? I'm not comparing the two one for one. But what I am going to say is if you look at kickboxing today in America, glory notwithstanding, just kickboxing, in terms of popularity, how is it any different than jiu jitsu? It's really not. It's really not. You've got a participatory sport that is hard to make money off of from a live gate standpoint or from any kind of a broadcast standpoint. The numbers are high in terms of being a lot of amateurs or low-level pros. You don't have a lot of high-dedicated pros. Um, you've just got a participatory sport like a jiu-jitsu where the people who show up to compete are the people who are sitting in the stands waiting their turns with some friends and family that might show up as well. Um, glory for the success that they had, to me, is remarkable given that context. To me, glory has been a runaway success when you look at in the United States, and globally can be a different issue. When you look at in the United States, what the state of kickboxing is and what they were able to achieve is frankly kind of fantastic. But that to me, is sort of the issue, what you need with someone, and, you know, and when people always say this, like what you need is a billionaire who's wanting to just, you know, give away a bunch of money. When you're admitting that, what you're admitting is you're not just growing this product. You're trying to grow the core essence of what the product is. And that is a ridiculously long investment. And frankly, an unclear one. Um, and the idea that like Spike bailed on them and didn't do enough, it's like if you were looking to them to do that from the get-go, you had the wrong idea, bucko. It was never, ever, ever going to be that way. It, it, it's, that's not what television does. Television is very much about they'll take a minimal risk, sometimes even a moderate risk, sometimes even a long risk. But there's got to be some measure of return that they can look at right away or or. A clear path to something. When I say clear, I mean ratings are going like this. Even if incrementally, they're going this way. You never really got that with Glory on Spike. But to me, like as I said before, the the fact that they got the ratings they did is kind of dr- like dramatically impressive. Dramatically impressive. If you take away Glory, where is your? Ne- and so there's lion fights. Okay, on 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 uh, Access TV, and they go to the Hard Rock. But after that, what else is there? There's not a lot, man. There's not a lot. It's a lot of local and regional shows. One of my favorite local regional shows that I go to that my teammates fight on, uh, the American Muay Thai League. I think it's based out of New York, but they do a lot of mid-Atlantic fights. They did one in D.C. not too long ago. I like going to that. I like going to that. It's a lot of, it's a lot of guys who are just at your gym. That's the nature of the sport in this country today. Now, it's not the, na- the case necessarily maybe in Japan. It's not the case in parts of Europe, Eastern Europe, or Western Europe b- either. I understand that. But here... That's where it is, and so if that's the case, and you got no Americans to put on TV, but you got Joe Schilling, you got Wayne Bear, but you know Wayne Bear's career has been up and down. Joe Schilling's had some ups, but he had some downs too. Although I think his, his career's been pretty great since being on TV, but to me, it's like it's just a huge, huge investment that has to be made. And frankly, it should also give you a moment of pause to think, "Wow, did the UFC hit lightning in a bottle, or what?" And I don't know why MMA hits sometimes and kickboxing doesn't, and why boxing hits sometimes. It feels like that boxing hits because it's got tenure and because it's got deep tracks in, um, you know, rooted communities, uh, ethnically and geographically in the United States. MMA took root because it was, it was branded in interesting ways. And they got lucky on TV in the moment of the reality TV era. Um, And maybe what glory needed was reality TV. I don't know. But I, I feel like, you know, MMA got by because it was seen as, some kind of modern adaptation of prize fighting, not glory, but kickboxing generally just kind of feels like fairly or not. And frankly, I think it's unfair. But it, it just gets kind of treated like, you know, we want to do MMA, but we don't want to do some of the things in MMA that some people complain about. Like it's some sort of like weird variation on MMA. When in fact it's not. Of course, it's got its own rich history all across the globe. And it's got, you know, tremendous fighters from all parts of the world. Um, but I just feel like the idea that like, well, Spike didn't make the requisite commitment. Spike made a a huge commitment and glory was a TV ready product. The problem is you're just talking about a country where absent glory kickboxing is something that people do in gyms. And I'm not happy about that fact. I don't think it's awesome, but. As long as that's the case, why is it any different than Jiu-Jitsu? Jiu-Jitsu is something that people do in gyms and then at local high schools or colleges for competition on Saturdays. And and if, unless you're a super dedicated member of that community, you don't watch. That's what it is here, man. Um, and for Glory to change that is, you know, I don't even know if that's possible under the best of circumstances. Not because that's an indictment against Glory, because it's just, it's just the way things are. It sucks, but, you know. So look, here's my hope. My hope is that they do get on, on a sports network. It'd be awesome if they were on NBC Sports. You imagine watching them all the time and having shoulder programming and whatnot? That'd be great. That'd be great, but um, we'll just have to wait and see what would happen. I I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Give me a second here. All right, Misha Tate. How important is the issue Misha Tate is bringing up about fighters having verbal agreements for title shots and then having it removed after their fights? Should fighters fight their contracts? Excuse me. Should fighters fight for contracts that legally hold the UFC to their word? They already do. They're called bout agreements. I mean, look, man, it's it's a tough issue because if you've got a strong relationship with a promoter and they tell you one thing, you know, I understand the belief that you're going to accept that. Um, especially when it's made at a press conference, you know, publicly, but the truth is, man, unless it's signed on the bottom line, they're going to do what they feel is best in their interests. This promoter and any other promoter, probably any other, any promoter that wants to stay in business anyway. Um, not that I don't think the home decision was weird or that I'd be upset with the Tate third fight, but you get the idea. Um, you know, I don't know. It's a comp. This, this is why you need a uh, every Misha Tate has an absolute right to be upset here. There's no doubt about it. Um, if you say something, they should probably be held to it, but ultimately, unless there's a bad agreement in place, they're just not going to be. I, I'm not sure what else to say about it. It's deeply unfair, but I don't know. I don't have the strongest take on that, to be honest. Me, I mean, it's like, you know, unless it's booked that you, that nothing is set in stone or you should know that in her case, it's pretty bad because they did say it in a public press conference, but that should be a lesson to everyone unless it's signed and finished. It ain't finished. All right. Kennedy's concerns, Tim Kennedy, Tim Kennedy recently stated that he would rather be fighting for Scott Coker after expressing many concerns about the UFC Reebok and pay. If you were the UFC, what would you do with Kennedy? The same thing that I know they're, well, you mean, what do I hope happens to Kennedy if I was the UFC? You know, I don't know. I don't know that I, I don't know that I have the sort of constitution to work in fight promotion. I think it takes a different kind of person, um, than I could capably do, you know, look, I, it'd be nice if they released them. They're not going to, but, um, but that's. That's sort of where we're at. That was a sort of a strange admission. This was always the one thing that I I always found very weird is that fighters found, I think, at times... So there was this moment when Pedro Hizo signed, I think it was the first time anyone in Zupa had signed a six or seven fight contract. And there was this time where it was like, that was looked as a status symbol, right? If you can sign a contract, that wasn't just two or three fights. No, no, we want you for six or seven. And this, of course, was in the days where it was a little bit more of a fighter's market. There was the WFA, at least for a time. There was cage rage. There was, you know, to an extent, sport fight or whatever the case may be. There were these, there were these things where, um, these opportunities where fighters could say, I only want to take two, three fights of UFC, then go somewhere else. Hizzo got one of those, I think it was six or seven. And that five, four, I think is the most common fight deal. But if, you know, the higher up the food chain you get, you still get some of those. We want you for this long period of time. But, you know, I think fighters should start thinking about that in the absence of effective management or in the absence of a fighters union, you know, taking a six or seven fight deal. And I'm not saying it's the case here with Kennedy, but it's a pretty common one should be should be done with a measure of skepticism. If you want options, if you don't want options and you're fine with just competing under the UFC, you don't have that big issue with the Reebok deal. Maybe you make about the same anyway. Whatever. Just keep doing what you're doing. No, there's no harm, no foul. But if you're one of these guys who's like, you know what? I kind of want to see how things look after a year, three fights, sign a three-fight deal. And if they don't want to give you a three-fight deal, then I don't know. Be wo- be willing to go do something else or wa- or, or work for another promotion or, or whatever the case may be. These are risks you're going to have to assume. And I'm not saying this is easy or simple. Maybe sometimes it'll be ineffective, but you have to decide what you want there. You, you need to decide how many fights you're going to take. You take a long contract like this and you deny fights, um that extends the amount before your contract has a sunset clause on it. So, something to think about. Understandably, most fighters want some security. All right. The chin of ruthless Robbie Lawler. Luke, how is it possible that Robbie Lawler was knocked senseless with one punch from Nick Diaz in 2002 and is somehow over a decade later able to take an ungodly amount of punishment from punchers today? Um, someone writes, his legs went stiff and he fell on his face. At that point, his confidence in mental training had little to do with it. He was 8-1. and one. His only loss was a submission, and six of his eight wins came by a KO, a TKO. He was supremely confident in his chin, got sloppy, and took too many shots to the face. Yeah, I mean, the other part is that it's always – people will tell you this who box all the time, you know, he got caught. I mean, with a stiff shot straight, completely uncontested. I don't think he saw it coming and he got hurt for a bit. He was, he doesn't put himself in those kinds of stand tall in the pocket positions anymore. He doesn't have his face wide open like that anymore. He may take a big shot, but he's typically got some measure of defense. He's got a better stance. He just, he's a coming and kind of rolls with it a little bit. And if you can roll with a shot a little bit, it does even just a little bit, it doesn't have the same kind of impact. So he is taking big punches, but it's not like he's taking punches like that. And again, that wasn't like one of these huge Popeye wind up arms, you know, monster uppercut. But you get the idea. Nevertheless, it 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 he doesn't he doesn't really take shots like that much anymore. Um he mostly um he mostly he mostly kind of guides it, or if he eats it, it's not, you know, it's a guy just not teeing off on him, basically chin up, flatten, uncontested. Uh, Yeah, I don't think his chin has gotten... I mean, your chin deteriorates over time. I don't think it's gotten better, but he's gotten better at managing what it has to take and at what times and angles it has to take it. All right, Reebok deal. What's a 1,000 questions about the Reebok deal? I remember when this fight first... Uh, excuse me. I remember when the Reebok deal was first announced... The UFC said they were not keeping any of the money from the deal. It was all going to the fighters. I'm going off of memory, but I believe the figure was, was $7 million. It was $70 million. Has anyone actually put a pen to this? It sounded bad out of the gate. No, it was $70 million. I've also been wondering, does apparel cost, i.e. fighter kits, etc., come out of that $70 million figure? Do you know it provided separately? Yes. Well, the best information that we have available is that that $70 million, um, that's supposed to that's part of the deal. That's not all just going to the fighters. Uh, my understanding is that that has to pay for the program itself and the apparel. Um, but don't hold me to that. I can't be sure. We've tried to get answers to that and it's not really possible, but there's an interview that Dave, um, Dana White did with Chick Hernandez here at CSN mid Atlantic, where he was like the 70 million is cash and um, apparel and apparel. Now, to what extent said. That split. We don't know. This is like a 40 hour long question for me to read. Question, why do we love Nick Diaz? That being said, is there something very odd about him, about how much support he has been given throughout his MMA, excuse me, throughout his marijuana ordeal? People have gone out of their way to support him, and I sometimes wonder what it is about him that creates this kind of unconditional loyalty. The Diaz hearing was corrupt in so many ways, and on a legal and factual basis, Nick should probably receive no punishment at all. However, it is also true that Nick Diaz has made a habit of provoking authority figures. 2007, 2012. D.S. That's a positive for marijuana, well, sort of. Not really. And from what I understand, the issue with the UFC 183 test is not if you use, but whether he used within the relevant time frame before the fight. Yeah. So, Luke, are you seriously telling me that there is no part of you that thinks, bro, I know this marijuana rule is stupid, but can you seriously not put down the, the joint a week before the fight just to be sure you won't fail the test? Is there no part of you that thinks if you give the finger to the man enough times, you are kind of asking for it? That's right. There is no part of me that thinks that. You are correct. There is definitely no part of me that thinks if you obeyed a rule, you should be punished for a poor interpretation of it. That's pretty clear. And the reason why people like Nick Diaz is not only can he fight his ass off, he's a totally unique character. There aren't many other people like Nick Diaz. There are not many people like Cowboy Cerrone either, but Nick Diaz is, marches to the beat of his own drum. He has always been totally different. He will knuckle up with anyone. Um, he's got some, you know, he's not a perfect fighter. Nobody is. He's got some things he doesn't do all that well, wrestling being one of them, but short of that, he does a lot of things really well and he's courageous as an athlete and he is unique as a personality and he's, you know, the guy who loves marijuana and goat milk and running triathlons and given that, as you mentioned, given the finger to authority he has, there's so much about him that is a, a measure of contradictions and things that we like and respond to. We like guys who are a little bit anti-authority, a little bit rough around the edges. And yet he's also got the softer side as well, where he's, you know, slightly misunderstood and, and maybe, you know, also the engine of some of his own problems. I think we can all agree about that too. So he's a lot of interesting things packed into one human man and trying to piece it all together and unpack it, understand it is highly intriguing and sometimes exhausting, but usually always a lot of fun. Uh, last minute fight cancellation. Do you think Poirier got paid even though Duffy had to pull out? I don't know. I would hope he got his show money, but certainly not his win. Uh, what if Duffy had to pull out two months before the fight? Does that make a difference to whether Poirier gets paid? Yeah, there's a window, um, about when the show money kicks in. Um, it might not be until after the weigh-ins, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm correct, but I need to double check that. Uh, Michael Venom Page, what now? Is it time for Bellator to book MVP up to tougher fights? What would you suggest if he fought who, about who, who she who should he fight next? It's a tough spot with MVP man because um, do you guys remember the No Sean Burrell fight? So MVP won that fight semi-controversially, not 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 totally, but that's what happens when you give him a step up, you know. You're, oh, he should fight someone tougher. Okay, and then he fights someone tougher and. You know, he wins, but he can't do the things that make him awesome. And I'm not saying that's always a case for, you know, never giving him a tough fight. But guess what I am saying is, um, you know, that's a guy who you don't want to let loose to the wolves too early. That's a guy you don't want to nurture forever. But it's a, if you want to take your time with him, I don't think that's the end of the world. Now, I think we are coming to a point where people like you are asking, I mean, okay. I get it. He's special. He's funny. He's fun to watch. He's got an interesting style. But, you know, what can he really do with it? Totally fair. Understand. I would say if you want to give him one more couple maybe two more tune up fights, but tune up fights that are graduation tune up fights, like they're clearly on a path to something. Uh I think that would be okay. But beyond that, you know, it just gets a little tiresome. I got a text message in the middle of my chat. That always means bad news. No, it's not. It's fine. Okay. All right. Uh, MMA management. Good question. Miles Jury recently posted on his blog and the UG that his management charges him 20% and stated that was about the industry norm. He defended this saying he gets value for that 20%. What are your thoughts on that considering most sports agents make 3 to 10% whether in a major or minor league, 20% is more than athletes. 20% is high. 20% is high. Um, most people I've talked to have been 10% or less. Now, they take less when you make a lot of money. If you don't make a lot of money, I mean, when I say a lot, I mean like millions, right? If you're making, the, if you're a 100,000 thousandaire somewhere from $100,000 on up, that's when you start getting closer to that 5 to 10% range. 20% is high. That's very high. Now, I'm sure he does get value out of his management's <clears throat> services, but that's still very, very high. And then someone asks about his fighter blog where he breaks things down. You guys need to read it. You guys need to read it. Maybe his management costs are a little high. Um, although, let me say this. 20% is not unheard of. It's just on the high end. Um, 10, 10 to 3%, as you noted, is much more in that normal bracket. Um, But you should read his post because if you look at his post, out of every 20,000 he makes, about 14,500 goes to expenses. Right. So just keep that in mind. Uh, it is hard to make money at this unless you make a lot of it. Now, that won't be at every 20,000 you lose that exact amount. Some of that would decline over time, actually. But you get the idea that, like, for a 20 grand payday, he only gets to keep 5,500 from it. And that, you know, you can say, well, cut down on this, cut down on this. Well, do you want to win at this level or do you not? Pretty simple, right? Either you're going to do the things you need to do to win or you're not. All right, look, who would you pick to win? Again, you can't hold me to this. This is just off first impressions. All right, who would you pick to win? Michelle Waterson versus Rose Namajunas. Rose, size difference would be too much. Holly Holm, Amanda Nunez. That's a tough one. Um, I'll say Holm, but I don't know. Uh, Brian Ortega versus Yair Rodriguez. Ooh, another good one. Um, Ortega, but I could be wrong about that. I'd be willing to be totally wrong about that one if I am. Tony Ferguson versus Donald Cerrone. Let's see how Ferguson does. Not that it's a, oh, well, because it's a striking matchup. Cerrone. Thatch versus Thompson. I'll say Thompson now. Uh, Cerrone versus Condit. That's interesting. Um, Condit, but that's a tough one.